Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Cardiac arrest is not an uncommon complication of subarachnoid hemorrhage and usually predicts a poor outcome. Professor Andrew Woody is the Head of Research at the Alfred Hospital ICU in Melbourne, Australia and Deputy Director of the Australia and New Zealand Intensive Care Research Centre at Monash University. He was recently involved in a large-scale registry review of this important issue and he joins me on the podcast today. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. Look, it's great, to, it's great to chat. Thanks for the invitation. Andrew, it's not uncommon for patients with subarachnoid hemorrhage to suffer cardiac arrest as part of their acute presentation. What's the link between these two pathologies? Yeah, well, thanks, Todd. I mean, uh, it's a really, really good question. Um, although it's not a particularly, perhaps a common occurrence in patients that present with subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, you know, I think everyone would re- will remember um, the case uh, that they have seen where the, where the, uh, the patient has unfortunately had a cardiac arrest. Um, look, the, you know, the exact mechanism is, um, you know, is not definitive, but it's thought to involve essentially this massive surge of catecholamines that occurs with ictus, with the bleed, um, into the brain on the surface of the brain. You get this substantial release of catecholamines, and then uh, this results in uh, an increase, obviously a substantial increase in afterload, uh, an increase um, in um, cardiac work, uh, and then you get this sort of myocardial stunning, subendocardial ischemia, um, and and you know then the patient goes on to have a cardiac arrest. Um, and now the, the, there's, as far as I'm aware, there's, there's not necessarily a link between existing ischemic heart disease and having a cardiac arrest with your subarachnoid hemorrhage, but you can you can obviously appreciate it's going to be you know. <laughs> a significant stress test. Uh, so in patients that have pre-existing coronary artery disease, you, you might find that they're, they're perhaps great, have a greater likelihood of having these sort of cardiac complications. But at the end of the day, I would say it's really a spectrum between you know something as catastrophic as a cardiac arrest all the way through to patients that will develop um, you know features of left ventricular dysfunction um, related to, and, and also have ECG changes and a troponin leak and pulmonary edema related to this um, uh, excess of catecholamine surge. Andrew, based on existing data sets, do we know how common it is? Yeah, look, so it is, it's, I mean, it's, it's a bit variable. Um, probably existing data suggests anywhere between maybe 3% and 10% of, of patients of, uh, with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, acute subarachnoid hemorrhage will experience a cardiac arrest. Um, but, uh, you know, in our data set, um, we found that, uh, that approximately 4% of patients that were admitted to ICU with a diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage had a documented cardiac arrest in the 24 hours preceding their ICU admission. So not a huge proportion, you know, when you think about it, um, 4%, not a massive number. I guess it's fair to say our current understanding of this situation is that the prognosis is fairly poor. What does the background data suggest about this? Yeah, again, so uh, you know, there have been variable reports um, depending upon which sort of region you look at and you know, different cohorts. But you know, you're, you're right. Generally, hospital discharge rates um, are re- generally somewhere between zero, so no one surviving through to perhaps around about um, 5 6%, um, you know, depending upon the cohort you look at. So in general, what we, you know, I think most people would perceive um, that having a cardiac arrest in the context of, of subarachnoid hemorrhage is a poor prognostic factor. And indeed, I think our data um, certainly supports that. Um, there's no doubt that, that patients that had a history of cardiac arrest 
uh, in the setting of an SAH and our data said they had their, their overall in hospital mortality was um, over 80%, so um, 81.5%, versus only 23.3%, or approximately 20%, uh, in patients um, uh, that did not have a cardiac arrest with their SAH. So, um, yeah, I mean, it is. there's no doubt that it is a very poor prognostic factor. Um, there's obviously a number of, a number of um, other sort of confounders that will influence that with, you know, where the location of the cardiac arrest was in hospital, was the patient found arrested, um, you know, uh, time to return to spontaneous circulation, um, et cetera. Um, but it's certainly going to be a, um, uh, you know, it is a poor prognostic factor. Andrew, you were recently part of a paper that was published in Critical Care and Resuscitation here in Australia, and it used the Adult Patient Database Registry um, for data. For those who don't know, can you tell us a little bit about the APD? Sure. Um, so the APD, uh, Adult Patient Database, is, is one of the registries that is maintained by um, CORE, which is the Centre for Outcome, Outcomes and Resource Evaluation, which is, uh, uh, I suppose, one of the divisions of ANZICS, the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society. Uh, so um, CORE uh, maintains a number of uh, uh, clinical sort of quality assurance registries, uh, the APD being one of them, uh, the Critical Care Registry, uh, resources registry being another, uh, and uh, and of course there's a paediatric intensive care registry as well. Uh, so ICUs will submit data uh, on adult patients admitted uh, to that institution um, to ANZICS uh, and includes a number of uh, demographic illness severity um, and diagnostic variables, um, and then uh, and it also includes you know things like laboratory values and uh, within the first 24 hours. So you can you can basically determine. Uh, the patient's a or will quantify the patient's illness severity, uh, so you can determine an Apache score or, um, more specifically, in our region, a, a Australian New Zealand risk of death uh, probability, uh, and then you can printably use uh, those uh, predicted mortalities against absorbed, observed mortality to work out a, uh, a particular institution's um, standardised mortality ratio, uh, and as a way of, I guess, benchmarking performance of that institution against other um, uh, similar type of institutions. And so ANZIX is, uh, has a major role in a sort of in, in benchmarking and quality assurance and providing reports uh, to institutions um, based on those sort of simple metrics. And I've given you one example of a standardised mortality ratio, but there are other um, you know, measures of um, of uh, performance that can be used, uh, you know, for example, the, the, the newly um, reported length of stay ratio and things like that. So essentially the APD is a, a very, very large registry, um, which uh, has got um, data now on, uh, I think it's over one and a half million um, admissions, adult admissions to, to over 180 ICUs across Australia and New Zealand. It's a fantastic resource that is available uh, to, for these sort of projects, which are a sort of hypothesis generating and want to use observational data to see whether there's a signal or whether there's anything that, that should be explored further. So your study looked at the uh, clinical course and, and characteristics of patients in Australia and New Zealand who had a cardiac arrest uh, in the context of subarachnoid hemorrhage and compared them with patients who did not have a cardiac arrest. What were the, the uh, striking points to come from the review? Thanks, Todd. So this was um, was a paper which um, uh, John Heaney uh, was the first author of, um, and he's a um, a, uh, a trainee in uh, in New Zealand. And uh, we had a number of sort of collaborators: uh, David Pilcher, Aldo Paul, Caleb Lynn, myself, and Paul Young. Um, and it was just great to be part of this um, particular project. 
Um, so as you said, we used the APD. We had data from 144 institutions, uh, and uh, we essentially looked at the the total number of patients that were admitted um, uh, over uh, the period of 2008 to 2019 with a primary diagnosis of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And after some exclusions, we identified that there was uh, 11,000 of those patients. Um, and then in the APD, there is a data, data point which, uh, which um, indicates whether or not the patient has had a cardiac arrest in the 24 hours preceding their ICU admission. So we're able to dichotomize patients to those that had had a, um, a cardiac arrest and those that had not. Uh, and then we simply looked at the, you know, sort of, I guess, the baseline demographics, uh, um, clinical course and outcomes uh, of those patients. Um, and I guess, you know, the first thing I suppose to say is that in terms of the overall population of subarachnoid hemorrhage patients um, was really consistent with what, what's sort of been reported beforehand. These, these are relatively sort of younger patients, perhaps. We know the median sort of age of patients that are admitted to ICU is in, is in the mid-60s. Um, you know, subarachnoid hemorrhage uh, patients tend to be in their 40s and 50s, and, and, the, and as a consequence, the median, oh, sorry, the mean age was around, you know, 55, 56 for this group. Um, around two-thirds um, or 60% are women, and again, that, that there's a strong female preponderance for subarachnoid hemorrhage, and it's not exactly quite why, well, clear why that is, but that is, is certainly the case. Um, more patients that were um, had, had had cardiac arrest were directly admitted from the emergency department uh, as opposed to the operating theatre or recovery or things like that. Um, they tended to have a shorter period of time in hospital before ICU admission if you had a cardiac arrest. Their illness severity scores were clearly going to be higher because they had a cardiac arrest, so their Apache 3 scores were higher, their Android scores were higher, and, you know, they had a lower GCS, again, you know, because they had a cardiac arrest. Um, they tended to have a shorter duration of time in ICU because these patients would um, uh, often, many of them went on to die. The in-hospital mortality rate, as I said, was um, um, 80%. And um, the, uh, you know, the, the thing here was, so as a consequence, they had, a, a, I guess, a shorter length of stay in ICU. So those, obviously, um, that did not have a cardiac arrest tended to have a longer stay in ICU. Um, and, but of those, you know, I th- so, you know, the overall, um, I guess, um, survival was, was, you know, relatively poor in those that had a cardiac arrest. So in hospital mortality, 80%. Um, and then if you looked at those that actually um, were then discharged um, alive from hospital, uh, we wanted to then work out, well, are those patients grossly disabled? Are they functionally impaired? And, you know, even though they're surviving in hospital admission, are they then going on to, um, to have a very poor quality of life in the community? And we actually found that um, you know, around 25% or a quarter of those patients that were discharged alive, you know, that's not a large number because only you know, mortality, or, you know, in hospital mortality is very high. Um, but of those that survived to hospital discharge, a quarter of those actually were discharged home. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that in itself was a little surprising, I guess, you know, that there were, in fact, actually some survivors that actually survived to be discharged home. Um, but I, we do have to acknowledge that overall, there was a very small number. There was only 4.6% um, of those that had had a... Um, a cardiac, documented cardiac arrest with their subarachnoid hemorrhage that actually made it home. Andrew, with such a poor overall outcome, it's obviously important for us to be able to try and identify patients who have got the best chance of a successful discharge to home. Were there any factors that you could find that helped you in terms of predicting their overall outcome? Yeah, well, I mean, um, 
I think in terms of in terms of discharge point, we didn't look at that as a particular um, endpoint. We looked at in hospital mortality as the uh, as the primary endpoint, uh, and we did take under try and undertake an analysis that uh, we're trying you know within those patients that had had a cardiac arrest, what were the um, uh, the statistically significant risk factors uh, for uh, in hospital mortality. And and you know look and and that that generated sort of I guess the um, the sort of usual um, sort of covariates that you'd expect from that sort of analysis. Um, we know that if you had a higher ANS rod, so you were more sick, therefore you were going to have a greater likelihood of dying. Um, if you were admitted from the emergency department rather than from the ward or another hospital, um, then you uh, would you know had a greater likelihood of um, uh, in hospital mortality. And similarly, if you were more unconscious. Um, then you had a greater likelihood, um, and if you were mechanically ventilated, um, similar similarly. Um, so, um, you know, I think that that in that in that setting, the um, uh, the you know we weren't able to, I guess, look at those factors that were associated with a uh, a greater likelihood of discharge home. But what we know in terms of mortality is that you know if you're if you're more you know if you're more unconscious and you've got a greater ANS rod. Uh, score and you know the GCS to some degree will be impacted by the the, the blood clot burden. Um, then you are more likely to die in hospital. Andrew, your data is somewhat different to pre-existing studies, similar in many ways, but there are some differences. How do you expand, uh, account for this? I think generally the general gist of the article would be very consistent with most reports um, in that uh, cardiac arrest, which complicates subarachnoid hemorrhage, is associated um, generally with a poor outcome. You know, it, it's difficult to know from other cohort studies um, if patients that simply are labelled as having a cardiac arrest um, might be admitted to ICU but are not admitted, uh, you know, with the intention of, of full uh, active treatment because of this label associated with cardiac arrest. And, and similarly, that, that might apply to our study too. But, you know, that we, there's always going to be a selection bias issue. Um, obviously, differences in healthcare between regions is obviously going to influence outcomes um, and, and, and obviously resourcing as well. Uh, so we're, you know, very lucky in Australia and New Zealand that we're able, we live in a, um, you know, a, a very well-resourced healthcare uh, um, system. And as a consequence, these, uh, these sort of patients are able to get admission to ICU and are able to, to offer, the, offer them an opportunity to see whether they're able to recover. And that might not, may not, may not be uh, possible in other areas because so it's difficult to comment. Um, but again, in hospital mortality was high. Though, however, in those that were able to survive to hospital discharge, again, a quarter of those were able to be discharged home. So there was a small proportion, about 4%, who were able to be discharged home, overall discharged home after a cardiac arrest in the sitting of their subretinal hemorrhage. And I suppose it does then reinforce to the clinician that it's not entirely hopeless. Um, uh, and it, obviously on a case-by-case basis, we'll, we'll determine whether these patients are appropriate for admission to ICU and what the expect, expectations are. Uh, but these data, these data don't, don't suggest that it's you know, completely beyond the realms of possibility that a patient might recover. And so you may you may want to afford some time to talk through the neurological assessment and see which um, way things go. But I think you do also have to, at the same time have to be quite honest with um, families that uh, a cardiac arrest in this setting is is associated with overall with a fairly poor prognosis. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast to share your results. Thanks, Todd. Thanks very much.
Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this, visit our website at www.oslacommunity.com.